G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. As we talk some more today about freedoms, as you know, we've been talking to a lot of different commentators, unpacking the likely changes to Australia's freedoms after the Prime Minister triggered a review of religious freedom late last year. Now, the Ruddock Religious Freedom Review has extended its reporting date to the 18th of May because there was a huge number of submissions. Catch this, more than 16,000 submissions uh, wading through those and preparing to report to the Prime Minister. But Christian commentators are not optimistic that there's going to be adequate protections that will emerge from the Freedom Review especially since the process of legislation through the House of Representatives, the lower house, and then the antagonistic Senate, these seem fraught with all sorts of obstacles. So what will a brave new world without religious freedoms look like? And how should Christians be preparing to adapt This is what our discussion will be about today, and I hope you can join in. Dr. Stephen Shavura is our guest. He's a political theorist, an intellectual historian. He's a lecturer in the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University in Sydney. And so, Stephen Shavura, welcome back to 2020. Great to be here, Neil. Thanks for having me. Well, Stephen, always enjoy your insights into these incredibly important issues. And I sometimes get the impression that with reporting on the issue of religious freedom, uh, that sometimes you could think that some people are being quite blasé about it all, as though it won't be all that meaningful, won't be all that big a change. What are your thoughts on just the seriousness and significance of changes to religious freedom? Well, I think it's a really important issue, and I, don't, I definitely don't think uh, that we can uh, afford to be blasé about it, which is, I suppose, in some ways a very Australian attitude, uh, because for most of Australian history, we've had pretty robust religious freedom, and, um, you know, we're very, we're very used to it, uh, but still over the last sort of 40 years, uh, you know, culture has changed, and now there are many people that would like to sort of remove uh, many religious freedoms and so it's certainly something that you know christians as individuals and churches need to be uh, really concerned about because ultimately what religious freedom is about is for christians and churches to be able to do what they are called to do uh, by god that is to have a really positive impact on the community uh, as churches and as Christians, and to be able to uh, speak the message of, of the gospel. So this is hardly something uh, that, is, that is unimportant. Uh, exactly what the outcome you know, is going to be is very difficult to tell. Um, so, I mean, the panel itself, the Religious Freedom Review panel, has sort of when you look at the names, you can see people who would be quite uh, open and sympathetic to existing sort of religious freedoms, 
and then there are those who you know may not be so sympathetic and then there are those who you know we're not too sure so the, the panel uh, it's difficult to tell you know what the upshot of it is going to be um is I mean, there I, I, i'm cautiously optimistic about the ability of religious institutions to be faithful to their principles in hiring although at the same time i i know that this is going to be an ongoing battle because there are many who want to uh, remove that right well this will be one of those things that will be looked at very carefully when there are recommendations uh, from the report that will be passed on to the prime minister now in fact the original finish date uh, would have been the 31st of March but it's been extended to the 18th of May because there are just so many submissions and uh, only a small secretariat to really wade through those and to bring those to uh, the expert panel. Is there a message Steve in the fact that there is an extension through to the 18th of May and is it possible that we might even see a further extension again? Oh, look, I, I, it wouldn't surprise me in the least if there was a further extension because, you know, there were, six, there were over 16,000 submissions and, you know, a, a, a quite a few of them have been made public now and some of them are really substantial. Um, uh, they run into dozens and dozens of pages. Uh, for example, the Freedom for Faith uh, submission. Uh, so, uh, you know, um, it wouldn't surprise me if they need even more time than that. But I think what it indicates is that you know, we're in a very, very uh, sort of special cultural moment where the conflict between a kind of secularist liberal or, or a secularist mindset is really intensifying between it and what you might call a fairly uh, traditional uh, uh, Christian uh, religious and, and even in some ways classical liberal mindset where just the sort of culture wars have just gotten to a point where everyone is aware that you know there is hostility to religious freedom and so people have become really mobilized it's something that now pretty much all the churches uh, are talking about it's totally unavoidable it, it actually doesn't surprise me one bit that there were 16,000 submissions and from what i've heard uh, the majority of them have been by those who are advocating uh, religious liberties, so advocating the continued integrity of religious institutions uh, to be able to operate according to their basic principles, especially in terms of hiring staff and things like that. Um, and sort of certainly in opposition to that, you do have very mobilized groups uh, who, would, who, would, who would sort of uh, want to overturn that. And, and, and so, you know, you have the Greens... Uh, for one, and then you have the, the organization known as the Equality Campaign, and the Equality Campaign was basically the organization that spearheaded the yes case for the recent same-sex marriage postal vote. And both of those, uh, both of those organizations have, st have stated publicly and, uh, that they want to see uh, existing liberties actually scaled down, that they would actually uh, prefer to see uh, religious institutions not able to be uh, to uh, discriminate against uh, um, against candidates for jobs who don't um, believe in or live out the, the religious principles of the organisation. So this is definitely the sixteen thousand submissions is a huge indication of where we're at culturally, and just things are really coming to a head.
So where the rubber hits the road here, Steve, because we're all familiar, of course, uh, with the yes vote uh, for same-sex marriage late last year, and that's the reason why there is a review of religious freedoms now, and the sentiment you might uh, assume from the majority of Australians who voted yes and said we want the change you might assume that that sentiment flows through to ensuring that there is no discrimination against the LGBT uh, homosexual marriage agenda. Uh, But going a little bit deeper into that, and if you hold back then and restrict freedom of religion, that affects a whole big uh, gamut of, uh, of all of the things that we take for granted. This is where the challenge is, isn't it? Because there'll be no winners, no win-win in all of this. Uh, somebody has to lose. Well, that's exactly right. I mean, um, look, yeah, you're right. You know, 60, 60, uh, a fraction over 60% of Australians voted yes to same-sex marriage. But what we also know is is that really good polling indicated that about the same number of Australians wanted to see that religious liberties were were, uh, protected by the government. So, you know, know, although most Australians were in favour of of same-sex marriage, at the same time, most Australians were in favour of uh, the preservation of religious liberties. Now, having said that, uh, you know, the 60% in favour of religious liberties also indicates that you were dealing with nearly 40% who were not in favour of the preservation of religious liberties. And, and that's, you know, that's a pretty uh, worrying statistic uh, for, for churches and, and, and anyone who sort of cares about institutions being able to operate according to their own sort of principles. And so that's sort of where the battle is going to be, um, because there there are evidently quite a few Australians who would like to see uh, these religious liberties sort of um, wound back, and that you know be, that that's very evident uh, in 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 Parliament, uh, as you mentioned, where in the introduction where you said that you know you know the, the, you were referring to the, the the Patterson Bill and then other. Uh, attempts to enshrine religious liberty received a very frosty reception, especially from the Labor Party and the Greens. And the Liberals were, by and large, in favour. But even, there were even some Liberals who were a little lukewarm on these on these freedoms. And so, you know, um, it's just it's just a little uh, precarious what the future of some of the religious liberties that we sort of take for granted is going to be. Now, Steve, when you have a debate, what you have is a war of words, and it's wonderful to have a debate, and uh, people divided, one side and the other, and making their expression as to what they feel is uh, the right way to go, the right position on freedoms. But as soon as you have now uh, the legal enforcement of homosexual marriage, you have the force of the law that comes in to make those things legal and therefore it goes beyond just a debate and it becomes now something that can be fought out in the courts. Is this something of the primary concern about the loss of religious freedom because people who stand up for their religious right to speak uh, might find themselves drawn before the courts? Absolutely, Neil. Um this was one of the, the great uh, sort of fears of, 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 of advocates of religious liberty, that once same-sex marriage actually becomes law, then it, it, it sort of gives the, the whole concept of same-sex marriage uh, uh, sort of a, a, a legal 
aura that makes it much more difficult to to oppose. And so, you know, when same-sex marriage is really just a sort of debate in the public, then it's quite easy to justify, uh, well, it's not just speaking out against same-sex marriage, but also um, uh, defending... Uh, you know, employment policies in religious institutions that uh, restrict employment to those who are sympathetic with the views of the institutions, because at that, at that point, historically, same-sex marriage is really just an idea. It's just something that's being debated in the public sphere. But, but you're quite right. As soon as it became, as soon as it became law, uh, then, it, you know, to speak out against same-sex marriage is to speak out against law. Now, of course, it is legal to speak out against existing laws. That's part of freedom of speech. You know, you wouldn't have a country that was free if you had citizens who could not speak out against its laws. But what it does do is that it, it, it just... Uh, placing the force of legislation behind same-sex marriage uh, does mean that the, the, the gulf between institutions that uh, reject same-sex marriage, so religious uh, and, and educational institutions that might reject it, and the government and national laws, that becomes wider, which means that in the public perception, uh, the churches and religious educational institutions, or any, any institution that might um, not agree with same-sex marriage, that it, it becomes, these institutions become further, further removed from the mainstream, which means that their requests uh, for, say, um, exemptions from uh, present anti-discrimination laws may not be taken as seriously because these institutions will be considered just quite fringe. But in actual fact, they're not fringe. Um, and, but they will seem more fringe because of the, the force of uh, same-sex marriage legislation on, on the public consciousness. And, of course, as you say, Neil, the other thing is that now that this is not just a question of public debate and it is a question of law, you're absolutely right. Now institutions can, uh, can be sued and, and, and legal actions can be initiated uh, on the grounds that people are actually violating existing laws. And this is just the last thing that we should be wanting in any free society where just having a, 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 a position on an issue as contentious as same-sex marriage is sufficient to be dragged through the legal system. Now, it may well be the case right now that such, that such uh, legal action won't be successful, but still uh, having to be dragged through it is sort of a, a form of punishment and uh, a punishment in itself and something that can dissuade people from publicly taking stands for their beliefs, but also dissuade people from starting new institutions that might fall foul of um, same-sex marriage. Uh, so the legality of it does, in a sense, change things for institutions, and it arguably uh, uh, makes things a little bit more difficult. But as you say, Neil, this is the world that we're in now, and we've got to just negotiate through it. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020.
on Vision. Talking about what a brave new world without religious freedoms might look like and how should Christians be preparing to adapt. As you know, there is the Ruddock Religious Freedom Review that's going on. It'll report on the 18th of May. Not a lot of optimism that it's going to somehow or other resolve issues that are going to bring Christian faith into conflict uh, with where the law is at the present time. Dr. Stephen Chavura is a political theorist and intellectual historian, is our special guest this hour and inviting you to be part of our conversation on 1-800-316-316. Stephen, uh, let's go back to your own story here where your own uh, religious faith has been, uh, in some ways, uh, you know, people trying to shut you down. Uh, take us back to that story from last year. Yeah, well, I mean, I found myself sort of embroiled in in in, in the whole question of, of of faith in the public sphere when, uh, around about this time last year, a a quite notorious uh, uh, gay activist uh, put out a tweet to the effect that my employment at Macquarie University was inconsistent with my being on the board of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute, the Lachlan Macquarie Institute being a Christian educational institution. Um, Now, this particular tweeter had already caused trouble for the Cooper's Brewery and for another fellow who was working at IBM at the time, so by the time he got around to me, uh, he, he was pretty big news. And so the, I suppose the implication of his tweet was and, and I suppose in some ways this was the, this was the big question that, that was raised. Um, you know, the implication was that because Macquarie University is, a, is an open you know, uh, advocate of, of, I suppose, sort of diversity as understood, uh, the, the way that this particular advocate understood it as a, a sort of robust rights for same-sex uh, same-sex couples and, and, and almost certainly you know, marriage, uh, same-sex marriage, because Macquarie University is a part of, a, of, of, of this sort of diversity movement. Therefore, is there a conflict in Macquarie University hiring someone like me who is not on board with it? And it's actually a very important question. Now, as it turns out, you know, my job at Macquarie University uh, at the time uh, you know, wasn't set back at all. I was on an existing contract, although, you know, I, I didn't really get any assurances from the university that, you know, everything was going to be fine. The university more or less said that it had no comment on this. Um, but the, it raised a really big question that, that, that all academics and, and, and students should be thinking about, and that is, you know, what are the implications for academics and students uh, who belong to universities who openly subscribe to you know, you know, p- uh, uh, political uh, programs such as, as uh, LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage and the whole kind of diversity um, e- ethic that has really taken hold of the West over the last 30 years. I mean, what are the implications for that, uh, for, for staff, for example, who reject it? I mean, not all staff members uh, at universities believe in political correctness. A lot of them think, it, a lot of them, basic, like me, think it's basically nonsense. Um, there may be some good intentions behind it, but it's very misguided and actually likely to cause more trouble than, and cause more problems than it's going to solve. So, does that put me at odds with my university? 
Uh, what if I am opposed to same-sex marriage? And in fact, I am opposed to same-sex marriage, although that wasn't on the record uh, before this tweeter decided to make an issue of me. But uh, where does that leave me as a staff member? And so the question is, you know, the, the universities who adhere to these principles of or, you know, diversity, to what extent do they enforce these principles on their staff? So if a staff member, for example, says, well, in actual fact, no, I disagree with same-sex marriage, or I, they may even say, look, I disagree with homosexuality, or I disagree with multiculturalism. Uh, does that mean that they have fallen foul of some standard of belief that the university holds to be necessary for employment. And so the question becomes, is it a university that, that encourages freedom of thought, or is it a kind of secularist church of diversity, where if you want to be employed or if you want to study at that university, you have to subscribe to a set of doctrines in the same way that you would have to if you wanted to belong to a church? And this is kind of the issue that the tweeter was really exploiting, because as soon as universities start subscribing to thick political and moral programs like LGBTQ rights and same-sex marriage and diversity and sort of the whole gamut of political correctness, where does that leave staff members who reject it? Uh, can staff members still conduct research that would come up with um, uh, conclusions that would run counter to the university's commitment to particular ideological causes. For example, could a university lecturer conduct and produce research that, for example, concluded that maybe same-sex marriage could be construed as socially detrimental, or could it conduct research or could it produce research that, would, that concluded that, say, uh, uh, sex change operations for transgender people probably on average will cause more harm than good and therefore it shouldn't be pursued, it shouldn't be encouraged? Uh, will university ethics committees allow that kind of research to be published? Um, and as long as ethics committees are accountable to the university's own code of, uh, code of morality, then, you know, the question of the freedom of research you know, is a really vital one. And the answers to that at this stage are quite unclear. We just don't know what it is, because the fact is universities are becoming more and more ideological. And the question is, to what extent are they going to try and drag their staff and students along that ideological path? Steve, you're describing a shift in thinking, uh, not just for people in universities, but the whole of society. And that's what's brought us to a point where there's been a change to the marriage definition. But uh, this intolerance for a Christian position, which is what it appears to be, it's not just intolerance for some alternative ideas, but it does seem to be intolerance for a Christian position, a real paradigm shift. And if it does stop universities from employing people who hold a Christian worldview, a Christian understanding of things like marriage, then you've got a, a major a change for the future of the whole society because uh, Christian views will be locked out. Uh, that's what happens with the end of religious freedom, isn't it? Christian views locked out of the marketplace of ideas. Oh, definitely. And like, look, it's already kind of happened in a soft way in the universities over the last 30 years. I mean, the, 
you know, the, look, the, there are two facts to keep in mind. One is that universities, you know, in, in, their, in their own bylaws and constitutions do not discriminate against, say, people with conservative views getting jobs in their universities. Uh, so there are, there are no laws in universities that allow them to do that. But the university culture, the, the culture at the level of departments, particularly humanities departments, has been locking out conservative academics for decades. And so anyone who works in a humanities department in Australia, anyone, it's, to, it's not even controversial, will admit that humanities departments are overwhelmingly uh, populated by people who are politically and morally left-leaning. Now, again, that's not even something that people deny. And so when the issue arises, the question isn't whether it's true. The question is why it's true. And so some people might say, well, it's true because you know, people who are left-leaning are smarter, so they're more likely to get academic jobs, but that's absolute nonsense. Um, I've worked in universities now for 15 years, and I can tell you that they're not smarter. Uh, then others might say, well, you know, it's because people who are left-leaning will be naturally more attracted to jobs in universities and things like that, but I don't think that's true. The, the, point, the point that I'm making, Neil, is that there, there is absolutely uh, existing evidence that universities can lock out opinions uh, that don't cohere with the ideological left. They can do it, and they do do it. They just do it at the level of hiring staff. And so what has also happened over the years is that that has meant that uh, sort of, uh, Christians have found it very difficult to get jobs, especially in humanities departments at universities, uh, unless these Christians are quite... They, they downplay their Christianity and they sort of upplay their left-leaning ideology. Then they've got a better chance of getting in, but even then, um, not so good. Uh, and so the upshot of all of this is that you know, universities have become very, or I should say humanities departments, have become increasingly illiberal. They've become um, institutions that are actually not about the free exchange of ideas, not about the creative conflict of ideas, uh, but about essentially becoming sort of secular churches, becoming institutions that have their dogmas, and these dogmas are basically taught in all classrooms. And look, if there is a conservative in departments, and, and look, most departments Steve, will have... Steve, let's cut in here for a moment yeah. because we're about to go to the news. So let's hear from Graham in Brisbane. Hello, Graham. Welcome along. Hello, Neil, Steve. Graham, what Hi, are your Graham. thoughts? Um, yeah, I just um, I'm very concerned about what's been going on in the media um, over anyone who dares to question legislation or, or even opinion. Um, but I'd just like to alert uh, listeners to um, uh, what I think is probably a disturbing aspect coming out of the public sector. Um, working for a government agency, we're, we're subject to um, uh, code of conduct. And uh, in recent years, the application of code of conduct has extended to people being off duty. And what it means is that if a, someone who's a public sector employee who is identified as such is seen to be behaving in a way contrary to um, government or departmental policy, then they can actually be, uh, have administrative action taken against them under the code of conduct. 
Um, and I think everybody would understand and agree that it's a good idea that, you know, that organisations can protect themselves in this way. However, more recently uh, I found out that there's actually an investigation in my particular department into secondary employment. And when I looked at the secondary employment issue, I asked the question of the people uh, conducting this particular working group. Uh, I can understand it's to do perhaps with fatigue management or even a conflict of interest in terms of someone's private business practices. But the reply came back to me, said, no, no, it's all about values. Hmm. Wow. So, okay. I mean, that's... Um, yeah, I, and so you can see where this is going. If, if, yeah. if, they, if, someone can, if an agency can decide that someone cannot have secondary employment because the organisation they're working for or they're associated with has values that are incongruent with those espoused by the department or the government, then it would easily extend into belonging to volunteer organisations, which would include um, church agencies as well. Uh, good thoughts there, Graham. Uh, let's hear from Stephen Shavura. Steve, uh, is this news to you? Oh well, no. I mean, this uh, you know really appreciate that point, Graham. Uh, it's just it's, it's a scary point to make, um, and th- this is this is precisely actually what. Um, the sort of the, the the fellow who tweeted about me was trying to bring up uh, that is that you know Macquarie University you know has a kind of code of values and the implication was that my extracurricular association with the Lachlan Macquarie Institute was contravening those values so this is something that I'm pretty familiar with and it's a really disturbing trend in in personal liberty whereby you can have a job with a public or even a a, you know private sector uh, organization and you know your your behavior uh, is not just monitored while you're at work it's monitored while you're outside of work but but maybe even more disturbing than that is that is that is the values that people are being expected to sort of live up to because the thing is the values that are spoken of, uh, uh, these sort of politically correct values, are very vague and they can easily be defined and twisted in such a way as to, quite, as to exclude people of religious faith or conservative political and moral views from being able to express themselves and from being able to pursue those commitments outside of work. So it's, a, it's, it's, it's really the state getting bigger and bigger, driven by this politically correct desire to, uh, to create a uniformity of opinion among Australians. And it's getting, it'll get to the point where there is just no private sphere left. Um, and and that's, that's what Graham is pointing out. And, and this, is, this is the erosion of, of liberalism. Uh, you know, liberalism adheres to the idea that there is a private sphere in your life that is your life. And as long as you're not, you know, directly and obviously harming other people, then the state, and dare I say it, even your employer has no business sticking their nose in it. But the, the new political correctness uh, rejects this idea of a private sphere in life and wants to make everything public and every aspect of your life regulable according to its own set of values. 
Okay. Graham from Brisbane, uh, outstanding comment. Thank you so much for your call today. And our talkback line remains open on 1-800-316-316. That's 1-800-316-316 to contribute to our conversation. We are talking about religious freedoms. And as you can hear, this is all pervasive when we're talking about the public service and then into the private sector here. Uh, no one's job is then necessarily uh, confirmed and secure. Everyone's job becomes at risk when your employer takes a values-based stance and when values are changing against Christianity, then Christians have lots to lose, Stephen Chavura. That's exactly right. Um, and And... Look, I'm not too sure where all of this is going to lead. I mean, my, my own, look, my, my personal opinion um, is that the ability for religious institutions to be able to operate according to their own principles, I, I think that that will be more or less left intact. And I think for a couple of reasons. And number one, uh, churches are mobilized, uh, churches are mobilized and they're organized, and so they're a harder, they're a harder object to attack. But also, you know, re- religious institutions include schools, and uh, over, you know, around about 35% of school children go to private schools, most of which are religious. So religious institutions, and there's also the charity sector as well, which is very substantial and does an awful lot for Australia. And I have a feeling that the people on the Ruddock Review know that and understand it. And so I think in terms of religious institutions, they will be more or less left intact. But what I don't think will be left intact will be a private citizen's general religious liberties, if you like, to be able to uh, resist engaging in services that they find conscientiously objectionable. I think that will be something that we will probably lose. And I also can see the political correctness creeping more and more into the public service and into corporations. Now, none of this is necessarily inevitable, but that's my own prediction. The consequences appear to be exact opposites to what we were being... Uh, debated and warned about during the marriage campaign where the freedoms were going to be for those religious ministers uh, to be able to exercise their own conscience about uh, marrying people but and then of course they'd be the only ones affected of course those are likely to be the only ones protected and everybody else is now at risk it's a tremendous contradiction isn't it Oh, look, Neil, that's exactly the point. I mean, throughout the the marriage campaign, the yes side, uh, particularly spearheaded again by the group, the equality campaign, they were saying that this will not affect religious liberties. This is about same-sex marriage, and and they were accusing the Marriage Alliance and the Australian Christian lobby of being fear-mongers, scare-mongers, putting forth uh, slippery slope arguments to the effect that religious liberties will be uh, diminished if same-sex marriage goes through. But, Neil, immediately after the yes vote came through, the same organisation, the Equality Campaign, then started lobbying to have exemptions from discrimination uh, removed for religious institutions. And they even put in a submission to the Ruddock Review requesting that religious liberties for religious institutions be scaled back even more. So they were lying, and it's something that we all completely expected, but it's not a surprise at all because there are these institutions that would just like to see 
absolutely no private space for people to express their religious opinions and to live out their religious lives either individually or institutionally. So you're quite right, it's exactly the opposite of what uh, the yes, many of the Yes campaigners were promising. Stephen, uh, let's talk for a few moments about uh, what your perception might be of uh, the general attitudes of people because what we're talking about, for some listeners, they will be saying there is something very much significant here that uh, we should be afraid of. Now, a fear of what may come with consequences to Christianity with changes to the law and a reduction in freedom, that's probably something that's normal, but as a Christian... Uh, the way we approach fear is is important because really we can't afford to cower in the corner here. There is a need, isn't there, for people to actually be uh, upright, uh, standing tall and defending the ground that they hold. Uh, what are your thoughts on fear of losing your job or fear of standing for your faith? What are your thoughts on how we approach those things? Look, Neil, it's, it's, it's a great question. And, and, and as I said earlier, yeah, n- none of this, uh, sort of the whittling away of religious freedoms, uh, even though you might argue that it's likely, it's not necessary. Uh, it's not necessarily going to happen, or at the very least, uh, it may happen, but not to the extent that it, that, that, it, that, it, that it could. And so, in fact, what what I think that many Christians need to do is actually just to take these public stands and stand up um, you know, against sort of workplace bullying on behalf of the PC police uh, to make them fall in line uh, with the whole you know, politically correct program. So I actually think that Christians do need increasingly to take a stand and just say, actually, no, I disagree with that. And even say that, you know, I don't really need to explain to you why I disagree with that. I'm happy to, but I don't need to, because this is a free society still, and we're allowed to disagree. And I do actually think that the more Christians who actually, they, they, they take a stand, they do it politely, but they do it firmly. They don't seek to offend, but they do it um, uh, assertively. I think the more Christians who do that, I think there's a chance that some of the some of the, the, the PC bullies will back down uh, some more. In, you know, in, my, in, my, in my own case, I, um, I, I, um, I, I took a stand for my right to be able to be a part of the Lachlan Macquarie Institute and still be employed by Macquarie University. And, you know, I, I was fine. And, and my uh, particular uh, harasser, he more or less backed down. Uh, and I think that it's a tough thing to do, especially when your job's are on the line or especially when your jobs may be on the line and you have families and things and my my honest advice is that for those who 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 really don't have a great deal to lose first that they be the ones who stand up and 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 speak out against this sort of thing in their workforce and what i've found neil is that when you do make a stand what you find is that there are more people than you think who do support you but they're not going to be the ones who who stand up first but you'll find that some of them will support you. You'll find that you're not alone, but only if you take a stand. one 316 Let's take a call. Glenn is in northern New South Wales. Hello, Glenn. Welcome along. Yeah, Neil. How are you? Very well, thanks, Glenn. What are your thoughts on our conversation today? Uh, just a question. You know, it's been discussed, uh, you know, religious freedoms and stuff like that. Now, the question that I have is that does the religious freedom... Include 
or exclude Islam, Hindus, Buddhists, um, uh, whatever religion other people have, or is it just directly attained to Christianity because Christianity is an offence to those who want to overrule it? Glenn, it's a good question, and as I understand it, the Religious Freedom Review is about religious freedom overall, including all of those religions you mentioned. But Stephen Chavura, uh, the main thrust seems to be to re-educate the Christian community. Uh, what are your thoughts for Glenn? Oh, well, Glenn, mate, you, you raise a very good point, and, and Neil is correct that, of course, this review is supposed to be in reference to all religions in Australia. So it would include Muslims and Hindus and Buddhists and Zoroastrians and whoever else you can think of. Um, but yeah, in fact, you know, a, a lot of the, the, the language and argument uh, is directed at Christians, naturally, for two reasons. Christians, Christian institutions are the most powerful religious institutions in Australia. They've got the biggest voice. But also, you know, to be frank, um, you know, the left is divided on this because the left, on the one hand, uh, want to affirm multiculturalism and they want to affirm Muslims. But on the other hand, they pursue a, a social and moral agenda that is vastly at odds with multiculturalism and Islam because most people from multicultural backgrounds have very conservative moral views. And so the, this is a, a, an issue on which the left is torn. On the one hand, it wants to really affirm uh, sort of a liberal morality and, and same-sex marriage and things like that. But on the, on, on the other hand, uh, it doesn't want to offend Muslims. And so basically what it does is it just sort of ignores Islam and Muslims in its rhetoric and directs most of its invective uh, to Christians. Uh, so that kind of explains why that might be happening. But I, I actually want to make, make a point, and that is I think... In, in much of this debate, we, we want as much as possible to get away from the expression just sort of religious liberties, and I think we should be talking more about something like liberal freedoms, because as I pointed out in, a, in an article that I, I put out in The Australian late last year, that this is something that doesn't just affect religionists, it's something that affects non-religionists as well. So take, for example, the ability of you know, a, a, a cake maker to uh, refuse service to someone who wants a same-sex uh, wedding cake. Well, that's, that sort of freedom of conscience issue, conscience issue is not something that just extends to Christians. So, for example, what if an Aboriginal uh, owner of a, of a cake shop didn't want to make a cake celebrating Australia Day? Or what if a Jewish cake shop owner didn't want to make a cake celebrating Palestine, or a Palestinian cake shop owner didn't want to make a cake celebrating the 1948 establishment of Israel. Uh, you know, people have all sorts of deep moral um, uh, convictions, and we all have an interest in not being forced to perform acts that are contrary to our deepest held positions, in the same way that we wouldn't want to force a same-sex marriage advocate to go and cater an Australian Christian lobby convention against which they were deeply morally opposed. And so I would like actually to see the language of this whole debate, at least in the public secular sphere, move away from religious freedom and move back to the idea of just general liberal rights or the rights that are required for a society to be able to call itself free in the first time, in the first place. And I think if we can do that, if we can shift the conversation to that, then we might get a lot more public support. Thank you so much to Glenn in northern New South Wales. Let's take a call from Jonathan in Perth. Hello, Jonathan. Welcome along. Yes, hello, um, Neil. Jonathan, hello, what are your thoughts? 
Yeah, the truth is very hard to do with. I think one time we talk about the same issue with somebody. When I brought the point, he said, you know, Jonathan, but the truth, the reality is, Jesus please said, my kingdom is not of this world. So if we want to get approval from the people of this world, we will always be the loser. Okay, good thought in there, Jonathan. Uh, we're talking kingdom here. Uh, you know, my kingdom's not of this world. Uh, you're going to be in for a tough time. Uh, this might be just catching up on us. Uh, your thoughts uh, for Jonathan uh, when we talk about this sort of thing, Steve? Yeah, well, Jonathan, thank you very much for that comment. I, I really appreciate it, and I think you're 100% spot on. I think, I think often what we forget um, uh, is that, you know, there are some views that in the current culture you're just not going to be able to convey them sort of winsomely and in a way that's not going to offend people and so that's just something you have to be prepared to live with and so you can do sort of one of two things you can just remain silent about certain things or you can just do your best to be as to be as uninflammatory as possible but still try to get the truth across all the while expecting that you are still going to be vilified by people so you're absolutely right jonathan and i think this that sort of leads me to a sort of a comment about the church. I think that the church uh, needs to continue what it's done so well for decades, and that is to be of, of great service to its local communities. Churches are wonderful institutions for local communities. They have all sorts of services that the state finds difficult to do itself. Uh, churches have relationship counselling. They have community activities. They have free English-speaking uh, classes. They do community building exercises. They have uh, childcare facilities. They're wonderful places to go and make friends, which is, a, is an excellent thing for people who suffer from depression or mental illnesses and things like that. And so churches want to continue to do that and continue to build on the wonderful impact that they have in local communities so that when someone turns around and says, you know something, the church is good for nothing, who cares if churches can stay open or not, then other people who've benefited from the wonderful things that churches do in the communities, they can just say, hang on, that's not true, my church did this for me or my church did this for someone else. And so you're never going to convince everyone, Jonathan, you're absolutely right, but uh, we've got to remember that talk is also pretty cheap, and as, as churches continue doing excellent community work and continue to try to centralize themselves in communities in terms of their needs, then that, over time, makes uh, attempts to uh, uh, squash religious liberty and, and over, overturn the churches that much more difficult. Thank you so much to Jonathan in Perth and really running out of time very quickly here. Uh, just to reinforce something along the lines of what you're talking about here uh, when we discuss this sort of thing, Steve, this idea that actions speak louder than words and there's a very important time ahead uh, where we talk about uh, perhaps even a re-education of the grassroots of Australian society to the good of Christianity, and that happens through actions, uh, not just speaking words. Uh, it is something that is—it's on all of our shoulders as responsibility, isn't it? Absolutely. I mean, the fact of the matter is, Neil, that over the last forty years, public morality has moved further and further away from uh, Christian morality, particularly on matters of sexuality, sex, and increasingly now gender identity. But then there are also other massive public relations disasters for the churches, uh, namely institutional sexual abuse, which of course is not something limited to churches. That's something that is just as uh, prevalent in secular institutions. But churches, of course, 
uh, have a set of standards that they uh, are supposed to be adhering to. And then there's also just the sort of the problems uh, associated with religion uh, since 9-11 and Islamic terrorism. So religion and Christianity in particular are held in much lower esteem now than, than, they, than they have been in, in sort of in, in memory. And so, in fact, there does need to be this uh, re-emphasis on Christians trying to kind of regain a lot of ground that they've lost, some through, through their own faults and some through things that they can't control. And so I really would like to see over the next generation a re-emphasis on, on churches and institutions going out into the community, understanding the needs of their local communities that the state cannot fix, and churches getting into those spaces and trying to and, and showing communities that in fact churches are really good institutions to have and hopefully when people see this incredible benefit that the churches have that many of them will sort of be involved in the church a little bit uh, over time they'll see that the reason the churches are so good is because the message that they carry about our crucified Lord risen from the dead for our sins is actually a true message, and that will be something that will not just change communities, but will change individual lives. Well, at the beginning of our conversation, I said I always appreciate your insights, and Stephen Chavura today, lots of fabulous insights on a very, very important issue. And a reminder to listeners, we'll have a podcast of this conversation on our 2020 page at vision.org.au later on this afternoon. Uh, have a little look out there for the conversation with Dr. Stephen Shavura, C-H-A-V-U-R-A, political theorist and intellectual historian. He's lecturer in the Department of Modern History, Politics and International Relations at Macquarie University in Sydney. Stephen, thank you so much for taking some time to share your thoughts and your heart with our listeners today on 2020. Always a pleasure, Neil. Thanks for having me back. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.